And let me invite you to turn your Bible to the letter to 1 Timothy. Letter of 1 Timothy. You'll find it on page, our section, on page 1178. We're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1178 in your pew Bible. Today we begin the study of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, one of the most controversial sections in Scripture. In these verses, Paul expresses his concern that the women of Ephesus not teach or rule over the men in the congregation. This is by far the most controversial section in the letter of 1 Timothy. The bibliography for this section is nothing short of astounding. Believe it or not, whole books have been written on just these verses, and most commentaries devote massive sections to them. In evaluating that mountain of material, leading expert and New Testament scholar Robert Yarbrough points out that the reading of these verses was fairly stable until 1969. Beginning at that time, numerous opinions, new opinions, emerged that tried to pry loose the historic view of the church. This fierce struggle over these verses then generated a huge bibliography of books and articles. Now, the cynical part of me wants to point out that 1969 marks the sexual revolution in America and strongly suggests that most of these new theories are not scriptural or historical but are simply driven by the culture. In fact, I think it's hard not to come to that conclusion if you're being straightforward and honest with the evidence. Anyone who supports the ordination of women to pastoral ministry will have the cultural winds at their back. They will find applause in almost every sector of life and especially among the powerful in business, academia, and media. So it would be a little cheap and I think a little easy for me to simply characterize everyone who disagrees with me as a compromiser, addicted to power and cultural applause. However, I want to offer a different, hopefully more productive, take on this explosion of controversy. I think God allows these things to happen for good reasons. When the church has faced various theological controversies in the past, God has used those controversies to sharpen our thinking. And that is my prayer as we examine God's word today and over the next few weeks. Whether you end up agreeing with me or not, my prayer is clear, that clear biblical thinking will prevail in your life by God's spirit and that you will grow and that your understanding of these issues will deepen. In the study I did for these sermons, my mind was not ultimately changed, but my vision was sharpened, and I was rebalanced, I think, according to God's word. I hope that will be true of all of us. But I'm not just trying to sharpen your mind, am I? I'm also a preacher. I want to lead you as I lead myself through these verses in repentance and faith. I want men who have practiced belittling, 
attitudes towards women to repent and live differently. I also want women to trust God, to take him at his word, and to find their high calling in union with Christ. And lastly, above all, I want us to work side by side for the gospel. The world is at each other's throats. We cannot afford to be like that. We must pull together. May the Lord use this series of sermons to unite us in love as we look to Jesus, the Savior and heavenly husband of every Christian woman and the Savior and model for every Christian man. May he be glorified in his church. With those words of ordination of orientation before us, please stand. And for context, I'm going to read 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8 through verse 15. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do, especially on this Sunday, thank you and rejoice in your creation. You have made us male and female. And though our culture tells us this is a bad thing, and works to end it and bring us together into one unidentified mass. Yet we know that this diversity that you have created is beautiful and good and wonderful. And Mother's Day reminds us so powerfully of this reality each year. We thank you then for the gift of being male and female in your image. And we pray that we would put aside today our own thoughts about those things and commit ourselves entirely to your vision, your understanding, your desire for manhood and womanhood. Grant this, Father, that we might be transformed according to your purpose and plan. And do it, we pray, because we ask it in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Whenever, whenever we talk about something as complicated and as emotional as men and women's roles in the church, uh, we have to begin, I think, by acknowledging the temptations and dangers we're going to face. Among the many temptations that come with this debate, I think, is the tendency to align yourself with your experience. That is, to drift toward the parts of the Bible you think affirm you and your experience, 
while avoiding the parts of the Bible that might challenge or even defy your life and your experience. But if we avoid, if we avoid the places in God's word that confront us, we are in danger of creating for ourselves what Tim Keller once called a Stepford God. The reference is to a movie from some years back called The Stepford Wives. A group of wealthy men in Stepford, Connecticut, essentially turn their wives into robots. These so-called wives never express an opinion or challenge their husbands in anything. The movie is about how ultimately unsatisfying this was for the men because real relationship means conflict and compromise. Keller explains, quote, Now what happens, what happens if you eliminate any, everything or anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who, you can, can, who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only, only if God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. Do you see what Keller is saying here? If you're just going to come to the Bible and demand that it reflect your experience and prejudices, that it aligns with Western culture at this particular moment or with the way you grew up, then you have a Stepford God, a God you can silence and control, a God of your own making who simply reflects back to you your own image and that of your culture or your prejudices. To keep us from this, to keep us from drifting either to the right or the left, or simply remaking our experience over top of the text, I want to do something this morning that we don't normally do. If you're a visitor here this morning, it is our normal practice to teach through the Bible verse by verse. And in coming weeks, we will do that with this passage in 1 Timothy 2. However, today I want to lay a foundation for that study by looking briefly at this important topic as it's found throughout Scripture. To help me do that, to help me do that and hopefully help you, I've chosen to summarize the Bible's teaching around two poles, or you can think of two pillars. So this morning, imagine yourself, if you will, on the train heading into Philly. There are no empty seats. You've been in this situation, right? You're standing up, and the train is moving, and it's swaying heavily as it does. With each hand, you grip a pole to steady yourself, a pillar for the left hand and a pillar for the right hand. That is our approach today. Each pillar represents a whole collection of biblical teaching, which I will try to summarize for us today. So let's begin with pillar one. The first pillar I want to present to you this morning has carved on it these words, in essentials equal, in essentials equal. 
in their being, what theologians call ontology, in their being, men and women are presented in the Bible as equals before God. What do I mean by that? At creation, God made men and women both in his image. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God spoke to them. As image bearers, we are equal. We both ultimately reflect the image of God. However, even here, you can notice some difference in the way we do that. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, will make a distinction in the exact way in which we reflect God's image as men and women. But that does not change the big picture, the underlying truth that we are together as the image of God. So, for example, the penalty for murder, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but the penalty for murder is the same in the Bible regardless of whether the victim is male or female. Either way, God pronounces the death penalty on that person because they have killed an image bearer. Historically, female infants were far more likely to be aborted, and that's still true to this day in parts of Asia. As Christians, we oppose this practice because it is the murder of someone who is a full image bearer in their own right. Another way of capturing this essential equality is to deeply consider for a moment our shared calling, our shared calling. We have different callings as well. We'll see that in a moment. But the differences in our calling should never obscure the fundamental life purpose that is as true for men as it is for women. To use the words of our Westminster standards, men and women together share a chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. At the foundational level, at the essential level, the level of being, we share a common purpose in life to glorify and image God in all we do and all we are. So on this pillar, in essence or in essentials equal, We note that essential equality. We also have to note here Jesus' teaching and relationships with women. They were revolutionary for the time. Although Jesus limited his inner circle to the 12 men apostles, he certainly had active women disciples and included them in his plans and his work. To give just a few striking examples... He sent the Samaritan woman at the well back to her people as a witness. Strengthened in the spirit, she persuades the whole town to come out to him and to learn. Jesus also sent Mary Magdalene to his disciples to witness of the resurrection. This makes Mary the first human being to testify of the resurrection. But maybe the most striking example of this in our Savior's life comes in his interaction with the two sisters, Mary and Martha, in Luke chapter 10. The Bible says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Our Middle Eastern members of our congregation can help us today to appreciate the urgency of hospitality in that part of the world. Martha was doing what every decent, self-respecting woman was taught to do in that situation. Notable men, Jesus and the others, had entered their village, had entered her home. Her reputation as a woman, the very reputation of the village in that culture, depended upon her hospitality. Her whole sense of self and of community and even of faith was wrapped up in the hospitality and service she would give. She comes to Jesus then expecting that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi and a moral teacher, will affirm the primacy of hospitality, as it is seen, for example, in Abraham's story and throughout the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus calls Martha to put down her work and come sit at his feet and learn. Jesus was not, he was not discounting the power and importance of hospitality, but he was placing her discipleship above those domestic responsibilities. In those verses, he compares the many things that are helpful to the one thing that is necessary, most urgent, namely her discipleship, learning, and growth. That same spirit is in 1 Timothy 2. We often miss it, but verse 11 of chapter 2 reads, let a woman learn. We usually skip on to the part about submission and all the debates about that, but that phrase by itself was quite revolutionary and emphatic. Women are to study and to become fully formed disciples alongside men. In contrast, sad contrast, the old rabbinical saying went like this, quote, better to burn a Torah than to teach it to a woman, end quote. The Romans and Greeks also thought like this. How different is the mind of the Savior as he seeks his sheep, as he talks Theology with the woman at the well, as he calls Martha to lay aside the good works of domestic life for a better work of discipleship in that moment. On this pillar as well, this first pillar, we need to note as well that women receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, enabling women to speak in tongues at that time and to prophesy. In Acts 2, 17 through 18, Peter explains Pentecost by quoting the prophet Joel. You heard this read earlier. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now imagine with me, imagine with me for just a second, how foolish 
so many men in the church today would look if they were to come across a woman at Pentecost in full prophecy. Imagine how foolish, how absolutely boyish that would appear and how they would appear in the presence of a sister in Christ speaking in the spirit of God. What a rebuke that would be. What a correction. And there's some, including some pastors who need desperately that correction. Acts 21 tells us that the church in Caesarea had a deacon Rockhill. I guess every church needs one. Actually, he was a deacon and evangelist. His name was Philip. But he makes me think of Deacon Rockhill because he had four daughters, all close in age. And Acts says that all four girls prophesied. The context suggests that all of them were under the age of 15. And they were like Anna, who was in the temple as a prophetess and met Jesus as an infant. By the way, what a great picture of God working in families. Four daughters who are all prophesying. Let me remind you, too, that some of the apostles were brothers. God really does work in families. Coming then after, as we go through Acts, coming to Paul and his epistles, this is a good place to pause and remember that Paul knew better than any of us the power of the Spirit in a woman of God. We simply can't study 1 Timothy 2 in the days ahead and pretend, as some want to do, that Paul was boyish, uninformed, unaware, or just some kind of chauvinist. Paul is fully aware of everything we have just noted. In fact, he has seen it happening live and in person. And he affirms the essential equality of men and women in Christ when he writes to the Galatians. In Christ, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul also clearly notes women as key partners in his ministry, calling them fellow servants and patrons. In Philippians 4, Paul mentions two women who, quote, worked side by side with me in the gospel, end quote. Romans 16 ends with him greeting women who shared in ministry responsibilities and they are commended for their suffering and faithfulness. Phoebe is to be received as a servant of God with honor. She is called a patron of Paul's work that is a key supporter. He also writes, quote, greet Mary who has worked hard for you, end quote. He goes on, quote, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. So women who had been imprisoned for their faith, they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me, end quote. The church's history after Paul is likewise loaded with incredible women of faith and spiritual power. Lastly, to round out column one, let's remember that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no human marriage. Jesus told us that. So there is no eternal submission of wives to husbands, unless you mean the submission of the whole church as wife to Christ. Our essential equality will be clearly seen for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. So I hope that you can see just from this brief survey 
that this pillar that I'm giving you is well established in scripture. To ignore it, as many do, is to deprive the church of the ministry of over half its members. To ignore it in the family is to impoverish the family horribly. The beauty of Christian marriage is that every husband has a spirit-indwelt wife to walk with him and provide insight, counsel, and prayer. The mystery of marriage is that you look into the eyes of one who is bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, spirit of the spirit. In my early days of ministry, I sat down with a reformed minister I greatly admired. He was a great preacher and a deep thinker. At the meal, he made a completely demeaning comment about women, one which I will not repeat, but which everyone here, I think, would recognize as completely inappropriate and wrong. But I was in awe of him, and I said nothing. I didn't agree, but I didn't say anything either. Then, a year or two later, I met Pastor Ted Treskar, and I noticed something about him that has stayed with me all these years. Pastor Treskar will not allow men to talk disrespectfully about their wives in his presence. He's going to call you out, so warning for any of you might need it. He will do it. I felt that same way. My dad had certainly taught me that, but I needed to see someone else do it to help me get it into my life and ministry. Godly men, godly men who are secure in their calling will always seek to strengthen and honor the gifts of sisters in Christ. Unthreatened, they will delight to see their daughters, their wife, their female friends thrive in all things spiritual. Godly women will also seek to develop their own gifts, sitting at Jesus' feet and becoming confident and mature believers. And wise churches will look to leverage, to use, and develop the gifts of women, more than half of their congregation. All this flows from this pillar when it is really and truly grasped. But what about pillar two? Pillar one says, in essentials, equal. Pillar two says, in calling, in calling, distinct. As emphatic and revolutionary as the Bible is about the essential equality of women, it is equally dogmatic about our roles as men and women in this life, especially when in the home and church. I'm only going to survey this second pillar quickly for time's sake, because as we go through 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 in the coming weeks, I'm firmly going to establish pillar two for all to see. So if you feel like I'm cheating pillar two by going more quickly, just come back. We will we'll develop it more. But briefly, briefly, pillar two, the Bible repeatedly affirms the absolute necessity of male leadership in home and church. If pillar one, if pillar one looks into the future and into our hearts 
to see the basic equality of men and women, pillar two looks back at creation and notes that God has made us different and has a good plan for us. Creation is also an amazing work of God. It can be distorted and abused, but it is essentially good. It reflects God's will for us. So Paul, for example, in this passage notes that men were created first. God did that very intentionally. He even paused before he created women. He then created women differently, a whole different pattern. Because we are American, we can easily miss this major theme in the Bible. In all of human history, really until recently, and in the Bible, firstborn rights, firstborn rights are a big deal. You see that, see that throughout scripture. Man's creation before woman is part of God's plan. He is the firstborn. And however politically incorrect, a true disciple has to struggle through that reality. Adam was also at that time given headship. He represented all of us so that we fell in him. Romans 5 makes it clear that Adam was the head of the human race prior to sin. <clears throat> we fell in Adam because Adam was already the head of the human family. That was the tragedy. So male leadership, male headship was not the consequence of the fall. However, sin has poisoned it for sure, just as God warned Eve. On top of that basic background, we have the many places in the New Testament where wives are told to submit to their husbands, as in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3, just for a start. These passages could not be more clear and more definitive. Paul and Peter use strong clear language in calling spirit-filled women to submit to their husbands in all things so far as their conscience allows. The New Testament also clearly forbids women from ruling over men in the church in places like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and here in 1 Timothy 2. The Bible never places all women under all men. The Bible never places all women under all men, but it does call wives to submit for the sake of order and mission to their husbands, and it forbids women because of that from ruling over men and from the ruling offices of the church. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, the argument against women elders is not that they aren't spiritual enough. In many cases, they are more spiritual than their elders. Rather, it's about how that arrangement overthrows the plan of creation, as we'll see in weeks to come. This is the essence, briefly, the essence of our second pillar or column. Looking at all this evidence, the great pastor, theologian John Stott writes this, quote, all attempts, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship, on grounds that it is mistaken, that it's confusing, that it's culture-bound or culture-specific, must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly, and I would add uh, politically incorrect, but it is there, he says. 
It's rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority for this life. Now step back with me for a moment. I hope you see that there is a mountain of evidence for both these pillars. We cannot knock either one down if we want to be faithful to God's word. But here's the thing. Seeing the pillars isn't enough, is it? We aren't just called, we aren't just called ever to just acknowledge God's word, nod at it. We're called to obey it, submit it to it, let it search us and change us. And there lies the problem, right? I don't think it's so much that the Bible is that unclear. I think the real problem is that we're sinful. We simply don't live up to our theology. This really has, I think, been the church's struggle all along when it comes to this topic. The church, until very recently, has universally come down pretty much where I'm putting us this morning. Essentially equal, calling distinct. And yet, we so rarely practice that way of thinking. And so we don't just need pillars then. We don't just need pillars. We need a savior. We need more than pillars. We need a cross between the pillars where we can go when we sin against God's word. For those of us, me included, who have in the past demeaned women, the cross means that we can be forgiven and can by God's spirit be changed. For myself, my demeaning of women goes back to my high school days. It's not something I've engaged in recently, thank the Lord. But it's also not something I sought forgiveness for or even really understood until my 30s and 40s. My thoughts and my words violated Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for the building up, I might put in parentheses there, of sisters as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the hearer. Now, maybe you don't relate to that experience. Maybe you're on the other end of this. Maybe you're a woman and you look back and you wonder, have I been undermining my husband all these years? Have I really wholeheartedly embraced these teachings? Maybe even now you're feeling despair and guilt. Let me encourage you to go with me back to the cross between the pillars. We need more than advice. We need salvation and God has given it to us in his son. So instead of tearing each other apart with grief and anger, we can come together at the cross as sinners and repent together. Instead of deifying our personal experience, we can ask Jesus to change us into his image. The alternative to this gospel is to simply follow the way of the world. In the ancient world, that meant demeaning women ferociously. Today, it means practicing Darwinism in the church and in the home. No one is in charge in Darwinism, so whoever pushes the hardest is going to win. In such a model, and we're seeing this more and more every day, in such a model, 
there is no one in charge, and therefore there is never forgiveness. It is disallowed. And here's why. Because there's no gospel. There's no cross. They've torn down the pillars, but with it the cross as well. Because you see, the cross is itself an act of submission and love. It was the greatest moment in human history. And at the heart of it all was the Son of God submitting himself to the will of his heavenly Father, though he was equal and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Meanwhile, what is the Father about? The Father is doing all that he is doing to glorify the Son, to give him his great reward, to make his name famous, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. The pillars come true then in the cross, and at that cross we are forgiven and we are redeemed to our calling. Come then not just to pillars, but come look at the cross, repent and be renewed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that your word does not just present to us pillars of truth, but in the midst of those pillars presents a cross where all these truths find their ultimate meaning and purpose and where we receive free and full forgiveness. Instead of destroying each other and canceling each other and abandoning one another, then this day we come together to this cross to repent of our sins. So, Father, forgive the men of the church for their demeaning attitudes, actions, and words towards their wives, daughters, mothers, and sisters in Christ. Forgive them for the hard things they have said and thought. Forgive them for their lack of love and kindness. Forgive also the women of the church, Forgive them for their sins against their husbands, their fathers, their brothers in Christ. You know them all, Father, sins that we have committed, men and women together. Forgive us in Christ, and through the spirit which Christ gives us, renew us to Eden. Renew us to our purpose. Make us what we were once in Christ. We pray do this through this sermon series. In Jesus' name, amen.